This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's where people become paralyzed by political correctness. We are unable to say Islamist extremism as distinct from Islam, the religion. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today, understanding ISIS, how to fight Islamic State, the extremist group responsible for countless acts of terror and atrocities. Can the language we use about ISIS and other extremists make a big difference? The Obama administration is hesitant to mention the word Islamist to describe an enemy at war with us and our values. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer, is with us, making certain we ask the best questions we can. Our guest is Majid Nawaz, chairman of Quilliam, a London-based counter-extremism organization. Majid is the author of the book Radical, My Journey Out of Islamist Extremism. He's also the author of the recent book of dialogue with Sam Harris called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And he joins us via Skype from London. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Richard Jim, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, it's great to have you. Majid, you argue that it's very important to make the distinction between Islamism and Islam. Yeah, here's where people become uh, paralyzed by political correctness. We are unable to say Islamist extremism as distinct from Islam, the religion. Now, Islamism as an ideology, like socialism, communism, you know, add the suffix, the ism on the end, and it's already clear we're not talking about Islam, the faith. We're talking about the politicization of the faith, the desire to impose any version of Islam over society. That's what we have a problem with, not with um, people, you know, being devout, praying, fasting. It's about imposing that on others that we seek to challenge. And if we don't name that, what we're doing is disempowering those Muslims within Sunni communities who are attempting to, to, to reclaim their faith from Islamists by doing this work themselves, by isolating Islamism from their, from their own religion. So, Majid, you argue that messaging is a crucial part of the battle to argue against the ideology of the Islamic State. What do you mean by that? We recognize the lessons that we learned from Vietnam. We understand that in counterinsurgency, one of the most important things is messaging. It's to identify and then isolate the insurgents from their host communities, because we know no insurgency can survive without a level of support within the target communities they seek to recruit from. Now, so the, the target communities they seek to recruit from are, are Muslims. 
in this instance, it's Muslims. In the case of uh, Vietnam, it was the Viet Congs, you know, from right. the Vietnamese population. So it depends on where the insurgency is. It happens to be today that we're dealing with an insurgency that is rising and growing within Mus- my own Muslim communities. I'm a Muslim, right? Within my own Muslim and particularly Sunni Muslim communities. It doesn't help that to deny it. Because actually, by denying it, we can't even begin to engage in counterinsurgency. Um, by denying it, the only thing we have to fall back on is the very thing liberals have been critical of, which is more assassinations and more war and more killing and more invasions. So instead, if we flip that occasion and start looking at counterinsurgency, we've got to identify who the insurgents are, what their ideology is, and then isolate them and their ideology from mainstream Muslims. Now, when it comes to the the radical Islamist ideology, you have a personal journey through this world. Tell us a little bit about that. So I I grew up, I was born and raised in the United Kingdom. And and, um, by the age of 16, for various reasons, including witnessing across my own continent, the Bosnian genocide, as it played out there. um, In in the 1990s. That's right. right. And, And cases of domestic racism. I grew up incredibly disenfranchised from mainstream British society, though I was educated and, you know, being born and raised here, spoke fluent English. I didn't feel like I fitted in. And along came uh, an Islamist organization that, that provided that sense of belonging to me, but also they peddled to me the Islamist ideological narrative. Though it's a not, not a terrorist organization, it's certainly an extremist organization. The aim of this group was to resurrect a caliphate. And I took that on board at the age of 16 years old and spent the next 13 years of my life on the leadership of this organization, exporting it from Britain to Pakistan, uh, to Denmark, and eventually to Egypt. Can you explain what a caliphate is? A caliphate is what ISIS claims to have established. Uh, It's what Al-Qaeda claimed to want to establish and what my former group first popularized. It's the notion of resurrecting a global Muslim superstate. So I arrived in Egypt one day before the 9-11 attacks And of course, the security climate altered dramatically after 9-11. And it was there in Egypt that I was eventually arrested, uh, detained, witnessed torture, and then eventually sentenced to five years as an Amnesty International adopted prisoner of conscience. Uh, And I served my five years in Egypt's jails. Did your views change once you were in jail in Egypt? It was precisely in jail where my views changed. I began reading a lot, uh, a traditional Islamic theology, uh, books on politics, English literature, but also importantly, I was in, imprisoned with the, the who's who of Egypt's jihadist scene. And I began debating and discussing with everything from the assassins of Egypt's former president, Anwar Sadat, who was killed in 1981, all the way through to through the Islamist spectrum, all the way through to uh, liberal and communist political prisoners. And it was really those five years, because I was only 24 when I was arrested and, and detained, It was a form of a second degree for me. I really matured and grew into the man uh, that I am now through those years in prison. Majid, can you just explain what exactly turned you off Islamic extremism? You mentioned being in jail and having discussions with leaders in the movement and doing a lot of reading, but can you go into more detail? The key point for me was the more I studied traditional uh, Islamic theology, the more I realized that theological disputes that we as Islamists were prepared to overthrow governments for um, and embark on war policies under so-called caliphate for were disputes that were historically debated in the pages of books between theologians politely. So I realized the sheer breadth of Islamic theological pluralism that existed in our history. 
And so I came out realizing what had been sold to me as my faith, Islam, was in fact a, a modern totalitarian ideology that borrowed much of its ideas of a super state with a super people, with an expansionist foreign policy. Much of that was borrowed from post-World War I European fascism, which entered the Arab world through Arab socialist movements and was eventually imposed upon the religion of Islam. And when I was able to make those distinctions um, and realize that Islam, like any other and all other religions, is nothing but what its followers interpret it to be, and it's been interpreted in, in as many ways as there are followers. Um, I was able to then, after that realization, distinguish the totalitarian ideology uh, that is an offshoot of Islam that I call Islamism from the normative faith itself. And when I came back to the UK in, in 2007, I, I could no longer advocate uh, uh, nor subscribe to the Islamist ideology that I'd adopted at 16. And I wanted to take the responsibility for, for my role, the, the role I played in spreading these ideas. And so uh, by 2008, um, I helped to found and, and chair and run uh, Quilliam, which we bill as the world's first counter-extremism organization. Uh, and we, challenge, we task ourselves with challenging a lot of the Islamist narrative that we're, we're speaking about. What do you see as the unique contribution of Quilliam to this debate against extremism? Well, we have a, a very unique perspective because most of our senior members have uh, spent years uh, in Islamist and jihadist organizations. The, 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 the person who holds the title president of Quilliam has fought in Afghanistan alongside bin Laden against the Soviet Union. Once the Soviets withdrew, when bin Laden declared that he wanted to turn his war now on the West, our president of Quilliam, Naman bin Otman, walked out on bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri, told them they're mad to their face, and he now works at Quilliam. So we bring that unique insight from how it works on the inside. We, we know the narratives inside out. We know the theology. We know the ideology. And we know, crucially, what divorced us from that ideology while maintaining our Muslim Faith. What I find so interesting about Quilliam is that you really did a positive, affirmative statement of the values of democracy and freedom and tolerance. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's important to understand that Islam is a religion, and like all other religions, um, it, it has the same debates within it, and particularly acute for Muslims at the moment. Let's not deny that. It doesn't help to deny it. Those same debates about whether we take the texts literally or whether we take them metaphorically, whether we actually say that there's a framework that we're going to use to interpret these texts to make sure they don't violate any human rights commitments that we may have. What we're arguing is that the texts mustn't be interpreted in a vacuously literalist manner. Um, there are passages within the texts and the scripture of Islam that simply cannot function today in the same way. You, you can't go around advocating, as ISIS does, that women should be stoned to death, gays should be thrown off tall buildings. It's just simply unpalatable to even suggest, let alone do such a thing. So ne nevertheless, thousands of young Muslims in the West have joined ISIS, and you're in a unique position to answer this question, which is, what is the appeal of Islamic State or ISIS to these young people? Yeah, there is an appeal. The appeal is a brand. ISIS provides a strong brand affiliation, a bit like, you know, back in the old days in the 60s, people would wear Che Guevara on their T-shirts. You know, now it's about raising the black ISIS flag. It's a bit more sinister, unfortunately, than Che Guevara, though Che Guevara executed his fair share of people as well. We just didn't have the Internet to see it. We have to undermine ISIS brand by undermining their propaganda, their leaders and uh, their ability to function and also their their ideology. But we also have to promote alternative narratives and alternative brands. Uh, the young uh, rebel uh, of today who grows up you know, in Europe and happens to be Muslim should find 
something other than Islamist extremism to express their rebellion through. Is this a job, though, primarily for Muslim moderates? No. Actually, just like racism, look, you don't need to be uh, African-American to be against racism. You don't need to be gay to be against homophobia. Likewise, you don't need to be Muslim to challenge Islamist terrorism. Um, There is a secular way to say that, that it can never be acceptable to stone women to death. You don't need to be a Muslim to say that. And part of the problem in this debate is that it has become so tribal. The truth is, just like I care about homophobia, even though I'm not gay, you, Richard, Jim, should care about Islamist terrorism, even though you're not Muslims, I assume. Um, And so all of us should challenge uh, homophobia. All of us together as society should challenge racism. And all of us together as society should challenge uh, Islamist terrorism. And we all have a role. Teachers They safeguard their students against grooming by paedophiles. Likewise, teachers can safeguard their students against grooming by ISIS, for example. Everyone has a role to play because this is a civilizational, a generational struggle. And you've argued, though, that a lot of people who support democracy and and a modern secular idea of human rights, they're reluctant to challenge Islamists and seem complacent about our own culture. So we haven't really developed that powerful grassroots narrative about why democracy is important. That's right. There's a reticence. And I've come to term this the Voldemort effect. And, and what I mean by that is for any of your listeners who've read the Harry Potter books, there's an evil bad guy in these books called Voldemort, Lord yeah. Voldemort. Right? He, so he Voldemort, who should not be named. Right? Exactly. And that's the point. But people are so scared in those books the, the characters in the book are so scared of naming Voldemort that they refer to him as he who must not be named. Now, two things happen as a result. One is the very fear and hysteria that they're attempting to avoid becomes even more uh, 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 sort of increases because actually if you can't name something, you become even more scared of the unknown, right? And the second thing that they do is they even deny he who must not be named exists in the first place. And I've taken that analogy to say that's what we're doing. That's what President Obama, you know, I speak as a liberal. That's what President Obama is doing with Islamist extremism. By not being able to name it, the Voldemort effect has kicked in. We've become even more scared of the problem. It's become levels of hysteria that we witness in some of Donald Trump's remarks because we haven't been able to have a a sensible conversation. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Miranda Schaefer. You're mentioning liberals, but... Is there a connection between the far-right extremism and Muslim extremism? Yes, far-right extremism and Islamist extremism have a symbiotic relationship. You know, if we can't name and identify the problem and then challenge it, two things happen. One is external to Muslim communities, the far-right 
and the populist right. And I differentiate between those two. I don't think Trump is far right. I think he's a populist. Um, and, and the far right and the populist right are able to then capitalize on our silence. And I say our here meaning as a liberal. So what we're doing is we're surrendering the debate to them by not talking about it ourselves. The second thing that happens is within Muslim communities, by not being able to name Islamist extremism, what we do within Muslim communities is we deprive those reform-minded Muslims who genuinely want to isolate their religion from extremism, we deprive them of a lexicon uh, by which to have this conversation in a responsible way that identifies exactly what the problem is and, and actually doesn't deny that it's connected to the religion. Islamist extremism is, after all, an offshoot of Islam, Right. But by acknowledging that, we're saying, okay, we need to deploy even Islamic terminology within Muslim communities to deprive ISIS of monopolizing the Islamic mantle. And you've stressed that it's really important to challenge not just the Islamist organizations that advocate actual violence, but also a lot of others that are looking for this global caliphate and maybe not advocating violence now, but supporting this worldview. Yeah, of course. You I mean, look, you know... People often say, look, I'm not extremist. I condemn ISIS. That's no, I'm sorry. Look how low the bar has sunk. Al Qaeda even condemns ISIS. That cannot be our baseline for working out whether, you know, we've made progress in this debate. What we've got to do is say, as, as we do with racism and homophobia, whether you use violence or not, if you fundamentally aspire to the type of society and you glorify and teach this to your kids, that the ideal society is a sort of society in which women by whatever conditions according to you in the Sharia are met, will be stoned to death, men and women in fact, will be stoned to death if they are found guilty of of, of, uh, of adultery, that, that thieves will have limbs amputated, and that gays will be murdered and apostates will be killed. I cannot agree with that and I will challenge it. I, I won't say that you should be put in jail because you haven't broken the law, but just like a racist who doesn't break the law and expresses bigotry, I will challenge it. And what I will seek to do is create an, a climate around you that renders that idea a taboo. And I think that's we haven't been doing enough of that part of this uh, of this debate. We were just talking about far-right extremism. Do you think that Donald Trump gives license, license to Muslims to feel like they are persecuted? Well, that's what I meant by the symbiotic relationship that the populist right has with and the far right have with Islamist extremism. They They feed into each other's narratives. So when Trump says Muslims, like me, cannot come to the United States, even if he then later tried to qualify it as a, a temporary ban. You know, when he says things like this, um, of course, the Islamists who thrive on the notion that there's a global war going on against Islam and Muslims, that, that they are the only defenders of the Muslim community. For them, it's music to their ears, because then they're able to say, see, they point to Trump and they say, see, this is proof that you'll never have a home in the West. You'll never be accepted. Come and live in our caliphate that we're building just for you Muslims. And so you're, what you're doing there is you're aiding the Islamist narrative. ISIS seeks to destroy the complexity of our multiple identities. ISIS wants me just to be a Muslim, and just like Trump wants no Muslims in America, right? So it's by polarizing that debate that fascism can thrive, and it's by maintaining the complexity and the multiplicity in our identities and our belongings and our diversity that fascism can be fought off. Our guest is Majid Nawaz, founder of Quilliam, a London-based counter-extremism organization. Majid, we are a solution show. So some practical thoughts before we leave you on how to fight ISIS. What are some things that we can do? Well, I've been a long advocate of saying that actually we need a big symbolic change. You know, I mentioned earlier that ISIS is a brand, yeah? We need to have a huge, like, you know, mind shift 
as to what we're doing in the Middle East. And so let's start with foreign policy. And I'd say um, it's about time Britain, the United States of America and our allies uh, not only morally supported the Kurds, who, by the way, have been the strongest force for resistance against ISIS, both in the Kurdish regional government area of northern Iraq and in Kobani, in that heroic struggle where they pushed ISIS out. And they saved them recently. Uh, they fought back against ISIS in Sinjar, where ISIS enslaved all the Yazidis. So the Kurds have been defeating ISIS over and over again, where the Iraqi and Syrians armies have been failing. So not only should we give them moral support, I think it's high time that we officially recognized and endorsed a Kurdish state. Because if we were to do that, if a Kurdish state were to be erected in that region, it would be the Middle East's only and first secular, democratic uh, Middle Eastern government. Now, I know we have in North Africa, we have Tunisia, which is steadily going on the right path. But I'm talking within the heart of the Middle East. There isn't any other uh, Muslim majority secular democratic state. And I think the symbolism, the power behind that, let's keep in mind that one great historical Arab figure, Saladin, was a Kurd. People think he was an Arab. Of course, Kurds speak Arabic, but ethnically he was a Kurd. So there's a great sense of history and entrenchment within the region that the Kurds have. And I think that would go uh, a long way in some of the alternative narratives and brands that we need uh, to tackle ISIS. So, um, so that's, uh, that's one big, big thought for you to, to leave you with. Majid Nawaz, thank you so much for joining us. And we could, we could continue this discussion for hours and it would be really scintillating. But uh, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? An absolute pleasure. Thank you, Richard, Jim, and Miranda. It's been great to talk to you all. Thank you. All right, thank you. So, Richard, as always, we love getting comments from our listeners. And if you like what you hear, yeah, download, give us those five stars. Yeah, yeah <laughs> rate us on <laughs> iTunes. Download the download the show and and leave your comments. Here's one, Quintus forty four. Wide-ranging, genial, and incisive. Since the problems are usually very big ones, the solutions suggested are rarely comprehensive or as easy to enact as we would like. Yet I always learn something and look forward to each week's offering. Yeah, we can't solve everything in no. a 25-minute podcast. No, but, we're just making a stab at it. <laughs> but hopefully we can model a way of talking about problems that doesn't drive people apart and looks for ways to come together. Yeah, and I think that's really needed because because right now, as we see the 2016 presidential campaign unfolding, the thing we hear about the least is respect for different people's points of view. And the notion that you know we can come together and look at things and, and we don't have to agree on everything to find a few things where we can find common ground. Majid talked about tribalism, the rise of tribalism, and you see that both on the far right or the populist right, as he correctly notes, and on the Islamist um, movements. They're, they're encouraging tribalism. We have to fight that. Okay, well, let's get right into it. Well, Richard, what a fascinating discussion. So much to talk about. I think one of Majid, Too much to yeah, talk about. <laughs> uh, one of Majid's most important points came right at the end. It's this distinction between Islam and Islamism. There's this tendency for people to think that Islamism is just a very traditional theocratic kind of yeah, Islamic, hearkening back to, to the some, original some beliefs. ancient belief so that somebody who was raised in a very remote village maybe you know had these kind of beliefs but that's not it at all it's a modern political movement that you know really grew up in the in the mid 20th century very much influenced by 
mid-century fascism and communism and very much modeled on it. And right. this is another ism, another absolute ism that that feeds off modern technology and this belief that if you sweep away everything that we have now, we can replace it with something better. And which is first you overturn what's here and then we'll build this wonderful new utopia. And that is a very attractive ideology, especially for young people, people who feel a little disaffected. And he also points out, I think, most of us in the West who who pride ourselves on our tolerance and, and our, our liberal values, it makes it very hard for us to challenge Islamism. If we think it's just being super religious, well, we don't want to criticize anybody's religion, and so we hesitate to, to describe it as what it is. And I think the distinction he talks about is helpful. It's okay to criticize Islamism the same way you would criticize Nazism. Yeah, and another point that's that's crucial Majid Nawaz made was that we take our democracy for granted. We take our liberal values for granted. And we need to be more aggressive in our support for those who agree with us, like the Kurds, yes. for instance. Yes. The Kurds are one shining example in a Middle East that's full of misery and discord and wars. And these guys are actually supporting us, and we should support them. Yes, and it's really interesting how begrudging our support of the Kurds has been. So I love his his enthusiasm for what I see as the great Western values of freedom and democracy. And tolerance. And tolerance. And and we have. We've become complacent. We assume that the world is just set up that way. It will always be thus. And that, you know, we could certainly lose these freedoms if we don't protect them or don't celebrate them. And I think that's a really important message. I was really impressed by how positive he is yes. and how excited he is about the potential for what he's talking about. Yes. And to, to me, it's fascinating that somebody who grew up was pulled into this movement the way so many young people are pulled into extreme uh, worldviews and then really educated himself and came out out of it and came back to the the really what I see as the the grand western values of of democracy and, and tolerance and freedom and now is such a champion for that and I think we need more people like that and we need people to be kind of loud and proud our show is how do we fix it I'm Richard Davies and I'm Jim Meggs our producer is Miranda Schaefer and thanks for joining us our audio engineer is Denise Barbarita at the beautiful Mono Lisa Studios in uptown Manhattan how do we fix it is a production of Davies content we make digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. see you next week Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.